0: In 1854, there was a 17-year-old named Dwight Lyman Moody who had just moved to Boston looking for work. His family was really poor. In fact, his father had died, and his mother was raising nine children on her own. So he was really desperate for better living conditions, and they tried some things he was living... He's living here in Massachusetts, but he's like, you know, I need something different. I want something better for my life. So his mom sent him to Boston knowing that he could work with his uncle as a shoe salesman. So his uncle had a business. The, the building's not there anymore, but there's still a plaque downtown where that office, where that shoe company was, where, where Dwight Moody worked as a shoe salesman. And the only condition that his uncle put on him working there was that, number one, Dwight had to obey whatever he told him to do. And number two, he had to go to church at the Congregational Church of Mount Vernon, which is on Beacon Hill, or was on Beacon Hill. So then within a year, 1855, Moody's in the store doing his work when, who shows up? But Edward Kimball, his Sunday school teacher. And Edward showed up to talk to him about the gospel. So he's 17, 18 years old. Kimball comes to share the gospel with him, and he had never heard the gospel message before. He grew up going to a Unitarian church where literally the gospel was not even preached. So he heard the good news that Christ had died for his sins, that he was raised from the dead, and that and that Moody could have new life in him. And he eagerly accepted the invitation to believe the gospel and to follow the Lord. And the next step was what? Well, he applied for church membership. So he went to meet with the pastor and some of the church leaders. And they began to ask him basic questions. You know, the kind of thing that even today, if you wanted to be a member of a church, someone might ask you, you know, tell us a little bit about your salvation. Tell us a little bit about what your understanding of the Lord. And what's great is they asked him this question um, because there were, basically, he went multiple times and failed. So this guy could not pass the membership requirements. But they asked him questions like this. What has Christ done for you? And so you think about that question, what has Christ done for you? Well, D.L. Moody says, and I quote, Nothing I'm particularly aware of. (laughs) So that's like an immediate, you know, X on the the intake form, right? This guy does not understand what Christ has done for him. In fact, it's been recorded by his teacher, Edward Kimball, his Sunday school teacher. He said that he thought the church had seldom met an applicant for membership, more unlikely ever to become a Christian of clear and decided views of the gospel truth. And furthermore, he said, he is still less likely to fill any extended sphere of public usefulness. Those are harsh words. Can you imagine? Now, some of you already know where this is going, because what happened is uh, this guy who three times failed to become a member of a local church community because he couldn't understand the gospel... This guy, in the second half of the 19th century, he became one of the most well-known and prolific evangelists in America and in England. He started by uh, just teaching Sunday school, volunteering at the YMCA, which back then was still a solid Christian organization. He would preach to soldiers in the Civil War on the front lines. I, ha- I found a record of him preaching to Union soldiers, but there's a rumor going around that he even preached to some Confederate soldiers. And then he went all across the United States after gaining popularity in England because in England he went there for a short trip, preached a hundred times while he was there, and numerous people came to Christ. Interestingly and somewhat surprisingly, he also became incredibly popular in Sweden. Even though he never went to Sweden, he didn't speak Swedish. He's a hero in Sweden. But he basically then traveled the United States from the East Coast Then he ended up living in Chicago all the way to San Francisco preaching the gospel. And he founded what is today called the Moody Church and Moody Bible Institute, which is in Chicago, Illinois. He also established the Norfield School and the Mount Hermon School, which were in Massachusetts, not there now. Uh, And though he only had a fifth grade education, he helped educate countless believers for life and for ministry. And some estimate the number of people that put their faith in Christ under D.L. Moody's preaching around one million. Now think about that. This is before television, before radio, before easy travel. He preached the gospel to and led to Christ about a million people. The guy who couldn't get past the Sunday school exam. It would have been so easy for Moody to simply give up at the beginning, wouldn't it? Sorry, kid, you don't understand the gospel. Sorry, man, you don't know what the Bible's about. You're clueless. (laughs) He could have just given up. But someone, and specifically that Sunday school teacher, Mr. Kimball, believed in him enough to encourage him to keep going. He encouraged him in his Bible reading. He encouraged him in his prayer. He encouraged him to trust in the Lord, and he would not give up on D.L. Moody. And I wonder this morning, have you ever felt like giving up? Have you ever felt like, whether it's a job or some project or maybe even your faith, and you thought, I don't know if I can go forward? You know, for Moody, his lack of understanding was an impediment to his growth in the church, his growth in the faith, growth in the gospel. But for others of us, it sometimes comes from problems or obstacles we face in our life with christ i mean how many times have you met someone who struggled in their faith because of negative experiences they had at church or trouble they had with other christians who were not acting very much like christ Uh, other times people have a difficult time trusting in god after a significant loss you know parents who've lost a child or children who've lost their parents or some other type of loss entirely and they think, how can I trust God after this? And then still other times, it's our own sin. It's our own internal and external struggles. But the, the sin that we commit that keeps us ineffective in service to the gospel. And even despairing sometimes of our own salvation. Many times I've met with people who, they say, you know, I believe in Christ, but I look at my life and I wonder, am I really saved? Am I really a member of the family of God? It can be so easy to give up. But you know what? Jesus doesn't give up. Jesus doesn't give up. Instead of writing, writing us off, Jesus restores us and calls us to something greater. And that's what we're going to talk about today. In fact, in John 21, we see a story of uh, Jesus not giving up on someone. So let me read John 21, and we're going to start in verse 1 through 14. If you have your Bibles, open it up and follow along, or open it up in a browser on your screen. John chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible here, there should be one underneath a chair, right right where you are. And this is is the story that we get uh, after Jesus has been raised from the dead on Easter. We're still in that Easter season today. We'll be in Easter season for another uh, four or five weeks. And um, after Jesus had already appeared to the disciples in Jerusalem, he appears to them elsewhere. And so here's the story we get. It says, After Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, it happened this way. Simon Peter, known also as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's uh, John and Andrew, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the nets in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, the author of this gospel, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. And the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have some breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So, kind of the the setting here of the story is that Jesus, both before he died... In Matthew 26, we have a record of it. And then after he was raised from the dead, in Matthew 28, we have a record of it. Jesus told his disciples that after his resurrection, they were to meet him in Galilee. So on the day of Easter, they see him in Jerusalem. And then Jesus kind of disappears. But he's told them, I'll meet you in Galilee. Wait for me there. And uh, Jesus told them, "You know, wait for me, I'm going to come meet you. But Peter and Thomas and nathaniel and john and james and maybe uh andrew and philip they're not really just waiting for jesus that's not really the image that we get you know what happens is they go to the sea of galilee and they go fishing and peter of course is the ringleader of the group and he's the one that says i'm going to go fishing now you have to remember that this is this is their profession It's not like they're saying, hey, let's go have a lake day. You know, let's just go out on the water. Let's relax. Let's kind of, you know, we'll wait for Jesus, but in the meantime, we'll catch some rays. No. They have basically said, you know what? Jesus hasn't shown up. It's been quite a few weeks now, maybe over a month and a half. They've been waiting for Jesus. And I think what's going on with Peter is he says, you know what? We can't just keep waiting here doing nothing. Let's go back to work. Let's go back to the job we had before we started following Jesus. Let's go back to the life we had before we were following Jesus. It's almost as if Peter were saying, "You know, that 3-year adventure sure was great, but now it's time to get back to real life." I'm wondering if you can relate to that, both in any or maybe in any aspect of your life, but very specifically in your life with the Lord. You know, that time I had with the Lord was great. Those those first 4 years amazing but then you know what I kind of had to get back to the real world I was on a high and now I'm back to my normal I wasn't depressed for a decade but now it all came back life was going pretty good when I met Jesus for a time but then it seemed like he was nowhere to be found and I'm out in the wilderness I might as well get on with things why would Jesus do that? Why do we do that? Not why would Jesus do it. Why would Peter do it? And why do we do that? And you know I can imagine at least two factors for Peter and I think they can be similar for us. The first is that as I said Jesus showed up for them. He revealed himself after the resurrection and then he disappeared. He was AWOL. They couldn't find him. And Again, it could have been almost, almost two months, a month and a half since they had seen him to this point. And that's a long time to be wondering what it is you're supposed to be doing. Now, some of us have been wondering what we're supposed to be doing for decades. But do you know the, the sinking feeling when you've done something amazing and then it's over and then you don't know what to do next? You know, Peter, like the rest of us, probably wondered... What do I do with my life now that Jesus has disappeared? So, can you relate to that? Whether it's in your faith, where again you have this vibrancy with the Lord, and then it seems to to kind of fall go through your fingers, and it's like, what happened to that kind of relationship I had? Or whether it's just the other things in life. You know, sometimes uh, it happens when you retire, or maybe you've been pursuing a grand goal and you accomplish it, but then you think, what do I do now? I'm always intrigued by those stories of the the New England Patriots and Tom Brady where, you know, he wins a Super Bowl or they win the Super Bowl and they say, what are you going to do tomorrow? And he says, I'm planning for next year's Super Bowl. You know, I think, how do you keep that drive? How do you keep that passion? Because what most people do, what I would do, what many of us would do is we'd say, I'm going to rest. I'm going to relax. I'm going to figure out what to do with my life now that that goal has been accomplished. It's rare to find someone who can stay so tuned in And, you know, honestly, I'm not even sure that it's healthy. You know, we could debate that for a long time. But it's unusual to say the least. Um, Sometimes it's after a loss. You know, sticking with the football analogy, if you know football, Drew Brees, who didn't win last year, then he's like, you know what? I'm done. I'm going to find something else. I'm tired of this. So maybe, maybe you succeeded at something, but maybe you failed at something. And either way, you're left wondering, what do I do with my life now? And, you know, these transitions can leave us feeling empty, can leave us feeling apathetic about life, we can get depressed. And I imagine the disciples were feeling some of this emptiness. Think of all the things they had seen. People literally raised from the dead. People healed. Demons cast out. And all of a sudden, the guy who was in charge of it all disappears. What do we do with our life? But on top of that, and for Peter specifically, there's also the struggle that he had with the knowledge that he had abandoned Jesus in his greatest time of need. Do you remember the story there in the Last Supper? Jesus is with his disciples, and he says, you're going to fall away like when they strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter, you're going to fall away. And Peter says, everyone else may fall away, Lord, but not me. I'll stay with you even unto death what does jesus say hold your horses peter (laughs) that's not how it's going to be you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows you know so so peter among all the disciples was bold in his proclamation but weak in his execution so sure enough peter's out in the courtyards when jesus is on trial and they say hey you have a Galilean accent. Weren't you one of those guys with Jesus? And he says, I don't know who even you're talking about. And no, no, I'm sure you're with him. He's like, I've never seen the man. Three times. Then the rooster crows and Peter falls into a state of depression, of of, uh, anger at himself, sadness, probably a deep pain, feeling very lonely in that moment, I imagine. Probably angry at himself and angry at the world because of what's happening to Jesus, his, his master, the one he put his hope in. And so Peter bore that shame of his cowardice and his betrayal. I think we all know what that feels like, where we've fallen short. You know, how many times in our own lives have we been tempted to give up on something important due our own shame stemming from some kind of moral failure or other kind of debilitating failure. Given how much we all sin, I'm putting myself in that category, we all sin, and unfortunately more than any of us would care to admit, uh, maybe we all should disqualify ourselves from serving Jesus. If we were to base it on merit, I know that I fall far, far short of the standards set by Jesus and by the lord because i know that jesus requires perfection and therefore shame and giving up seem to be only the only reasonable option sometimes and in this difficult moment for the disciples when they've already retreated back to their old way of life it's there's this insult that's added to injury which is they can't even get any fish do you know that story it's like you're down and then you get kicked <laughs> Maybe you tried a new venture, a new, a new business venture. It failed, and you think, I'll go back to my own job, and old job, and they won't hire you. You know, it's kind of like that for these disciples. They go back to fishing, but they don't even catch any fish. It's like the worst of all, of all situations that night. And so you just imagine, in their heads, they're thinking, not only have we lost Jesus, not only have we lost all of our hopes and our dreams, Not only have we failed him, but now we can't even go back to our old job. We can't even go back to our old profession. We're sunk. But then in the midst of this pity party, Jesus reveals himself. Jesus shows up. And have you ever noticed Jesus has impeccable timing? You know, he could have shown up when Peter said, hey, let's go fishing, and Jesus kind of walks up, Peter, Peter, don't go fishing. Don't go back to your old way of life. Come on, it wasn't that bad. Guys, guys, come on. Let's just talk for a minute before you cast the boats off from the shore. No, he lets them go out into the water. He doesn't call them before they go fishing. He waits till they've gone fishing and haven't caught anything. They've been out there the whole night. And then he doesn't even wait for them to come back to shore he calls out to them when they're about a hundred what was it a hundred yards out he says hey you catch anything and you just kind of imagine i think jesus is i think he has a good sense of humor so you just kind of imagine him saying like we know they haven't caught anything this is going to be good just wait and see what happens i wonder if he's thinking that to himself but he just has that perfect timing And they're not even, you know, they're not even totally defeated yet. Imagine if they had come back, pulled their nets in, and they had the whole night, no fish, and they're just totally dejected. No, he catches them before they're back. And he says, cast your nets here and see what happens. You know, he's just kind of calmly tending a fire, cooking his fish while they cast their nets. And they pull in this huge catch. Now, if you guys know the gospel stories, you know that this is not the first time Jesus had done this. When, Peter first called, when Jesus first called his disciples, he was out in Peter's boat, and he's preaching from the, the boat to the people on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he says, by the way, Peter, did you catch anything? He says, no. He said, oh, oh, you need to, you need to cast your nets here. And of course, the, the professional fisherman is like, Whatever. You don't know what you're talking about. Jesus now no, do it. So he throws the nets in, and of course that time the nets are breaking because there's too many fish for them to bring in. So when this happens, for whatever reason, they can't visually recognize Jesus, but when they cast their nets in the water and now they have an abundance of fish, John knows that it's Jesus Christ. John knows that this man who's calling out to them is the one they've been looking for. And he immediately says, it's the Lord, it's the Lord. And Peter jumps in the water. He can't even wait for the boat to get back to shore and he swims to Jesus. Right? He's so overwhelmed that he just jumps in the water. What was he overwhelmed with, do you think? Maybe excitement? Maybe relief? Maybe he just couldn't wait to get back to the person who was the only one who could give him what he needed which was some forgiveness i don't know what compelled peter to jump in the water but he does he jumps right in the water and he goes to jesus and look at how peter greets him and greets them he has food ready for them so he serves them he welcomes them as friends He allows them to contribute some fish for the meal. He's already got, I don't know where he got the other fish. I don't know if he bought it from another fisherman or if he just, you know, Jesused it out of thin air. But either way, he's got that fish there and some bread on the fire. But he says, bring some more fish. We'll cook it up. It's kind of like he's reminding them that they're not just a project that he works on. They're partners. They're brothers. They're in this together. And that's so often how Jesus approaches us when we're feeling washed up when we feel like we don't have a purpose, when we're tempted to return to the life we had before we knew Jesus, Jesus shows up and receives us as brothers, as sisters, as partners, and as friends. And sometimes all we really need is for Jesus to just reveal himself in a difficult moment. And the self-pity and the shame and the fear, they melt away. I don't think when Peter jumped in that boat, he was feeling self-pity i don't think he was feeling fear i don't think he was feeling shame when he knew jesus was there it's like that went to the background and all this good stuff came to the fore sometimes we just simply need to be with him and that's certainly what happened for peter but what happens when jesus shows up and peter comes in well he restores him jesus restores him What's great about Jesus is he doesn't just show up. He's not merely being present. I mean, him being present is a big deal, but it doesn't end there. The next thing Jesus does for Peter and what he does for us is so powerful. So remember, Peter's feeling guilty. Three times he denied Christ. He's got this shame. He's got this sadness. He's got this regret. He feels like a coward, right? And we, in life, sometimes we face these moments of truth just like Peter did. Have you ever been at work and a coworker maybe says something about the gospel or about God or about Christians or church or whatever that's just not true? And in your mind the the thing starts turning like should I say something or should I not? Should I stand up for this or should I let it go? What's going to happen to me if I speak up? If I do speak up, what am I going to say? And we kind of go through this difficult moment where Basically, are we going to abandon our faith or are we going to stand up for truth, right? And whether you're a student in school or, you know, just a a mom at the playground, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, these moments come up. And when it came up for Peter, it came up in the most dramatic way possible with Jesus on trial going to his death. And Peter abandoned Jesus. You know, he was probably afraid for his life. Most of us are probably afraid for our social standing, maybe for our job, but rarely are we afraid for our life the way Peter was. So we can have some compassion for Peter, right? But it's no secret that even today there are a lot of people who are very openly opposed to our faith, openly opposed to the church. In fact, it's almost chic now to be anti-Christian. You know, it's almost the cool thing to do. Um... You know, we, we live in a time when, when uh, believing in anything almost is, is you know, very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it almost looks like a weakness. To trust in anything is a weakness. The smart thing to do and the cool thing to do is to essentially not trust anything, right? That's kind of where we're, where we're at. And then on top of that, as we know, there have been some very high-profile people who have really attached their faith to political things. And it's almost like if you're opposed to them politically, then you have to also be opposed to their faith because some people have made it. It's like it's the same thing. And remember, church is so important. The things that we believe in, they're political only secondarily. Only secondarily. We're not a political movement. We're a love movement. We're a grace movement. We're we're a truth movement, but we're not a political movement. So when that happens, it's actually harder for the church to kind of stand her ground without receiving this backlash, this attack. And so this is just kind of the, the, the culture, the society, the water that we're swimming in. So it can make it really hard to stand up for your faith. But whatever the circumstances are and whatever the opposition is, we are called by Christ to stand up for the gospel. And when we don't, we can feel awful about it. So let's look at what Jesus does for Peter so back in John chapter 21 starting in verse 15 and we'll go through uh, 17 it says when they had finished eating Jesus said to Simon Peter Simon son of John do you love me more than these I don't know what, who the these are actually do, I lo- do you love me more than the other disciples do you love me more than going back to your old profession all these fish Uh, it's not entirely clear here, but basically the question is, Simon Peter, do you love me more than anything? Might be another way to phrase that question. And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. What is Jesus doing? You know, Peter was called by Jesus to come and... Essentially, you know, the word that we use now, pastor, means shepherd. He he called Peter essentially to be a shepherd in his flock. A leader in the church. He's the rock on which the church of God is founded. Right? When When Jesus says, on this rock, Peter, I will build my church. Peter was called to be a leader among God's people. But because of his failure, because of his... Uncertainty of his future, he had gone back to fishing. And what Jesus says is that calling that you had before, that you thought was lost forever, I'm restoring it. The, the ways that you denied me, now you have affirmed me. Not only three times did you deny me, but three times you affirmed me. Three times I wasn't, you didn't love me more than everything else. Three times you do love me more than everything else. What peter has to do though is he has to face right he's sad he's hurt is what it says peter was hurt because jesus asked him the third time it's not like jesus can just come to peter and say you know what no big deal let's let bygones be bygones let's go do what we came here to do that's not what jesus does he says peter you know that horrible thing you did let's go back to that and revisit it let's go face the difficult moment let's go to the thing that's causing you the most shame and let's address it head on. That's what Jesus does. You know, when Jesus heals you, it's not like he erases everything. Like he erases all the bad stuff that happened. You know, whether it's childhood trauma or your failure or whatever it is. He doesn't just go and say, that never happened. No, it did happen. He goes back and, say, and says, actually, let's just show, I'm going to show you how this thing that's been holding you back, I'm going to redeem it i'm going to make it good i'm not going to erase it i'm going to i'm going to reframe it so that you can see how i the god of the universe am using this for your good because that's the promise that we have in scripture right that god uses all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes so uh you know jesus is in the business of restoring people that's so different from what we often want. We would much rather have that old, for those who are young, I apologize. There was a movie called Men in Black and they could hold this thing up to your face and hit a button and you wouldn't remember what happened. That's what we want. Let's just pretend, oh shucks, let's, let's not worry about that. Let's move on. That's what we want most of the time. And Jesus says, wow, that's, that's actually kind of lame. Let's do something really cool here. Let's go back to it and heal it. Let's go back to it and and make it different. Let's flip the script on this, you know? And so it it was hard for Peter to verbalize his love for Jesus three times. But I wonder if he had not, if Jesus had just said, don't worry about it, Peter, we're not even going to talk about it. I wonder if Peter would have spent the rest of his life second-guessing himself in relation to his calling and his ministry in the gospel. He would have been wondering, does God really love me? Does God really accept me? You know, Jesus, Jesus brushed it under, under the rug, but what does he really think? No, that's not what happened. He goes back to each of the three denials so Jesus can show Peter that he knew about all three of them, by the way. Peter wasn't, Jesus wasn't there when Peter denied him. He was off having a trial. You know, he says, I know about it. Let's not pretend it didn't happen. And then he gives Peter a chance to respond to all three. And after each one, he says... Peter, because you love me, I'm trusting you to care for my body, the church. You denied me. You affirmed me. I trust you. I forgive you. I accept you. You are one of us. This is huge. You know, in my own life, I've faced moments where I struggle with how in the world do I go on with my faith? How in the world can I go on with ministry? How can I, in the world can I go on with life? And I'm not talking about being suicidal or anything like that. I'm just saying you wonder, how can, how can I do and be what I'm called to do and be given what I've done? Can you relate to that? How can I do and be what I'm called to do and be given what I've done? I just felt inadequate. I know my failures. I see my shortcomings. Thank God not all of them, right? That would be overwhelming. But, you know, I've got a fair sense of self-awareness here, and I think most of us do, But in these moments, the most powerful encouragement I've ever had is when I face squarely the failure, face squarely the hurt, face squarely what's been done to me or what I've done. And then with Jesus by my side, having the courage to face those things in my life and heal through them instead of trying to go around them, avoid them, or ignore them. This is what Jesus does. That's why it's so important that Jesus reveals himself to Peter in this moment. If Jesus wasn't there, Peter would never have been able to face the failure of his sin. But with his friend by his side, the friend who literally had just died for him and been raised from the dead, Peter is able to face it head on and find the healing that he so desperately needs to step back into the calling that Jesus gave him and placed on his life. So like Peter, you can do that and I can do that. With Jesus by our side, in church, this is so important, don't miss it, with Jesus by your side, you can face all the difficult moments of your life, whether they are your failings, whether they are the failings of others, whether they are shame-based or guilt-based or fear-based or pain-based, you can face it with Jesus. And with Jesus there, there's nothing that you won't be able to face, and when you face it, you will find healing, because our tendency is to avoid the difficult places, it's a way of coping, but coping can only last for so long. Eventually, it comes back up in a way you never expected. But when you heal from it, the past no longer has power over you. Your destiny is no longer to be going back to the Lake of Galilee fishing, right? You're no longer destined to go back to what you were, unless you were, unless you are a fisherman. Like, if you're a fisherman for Jesus, then great, go fishing. But it's not about fishing, right? Your destiny is not about fishing. It's about what you do while you're fishing for the Lord. And for Peter, it wasn't about fishing at all anymore. He had a different destiny. So whether you're a fisherman or not, you have a much greater calling in life than just to catch fish. You have a much greater calling in life than just to provide for your family. Providing for your family is necessary. But that's the smallest Uh, of the great calling that god has put on your life you know you're not just there uh you're not just there in life to to be successful in work you're not just there in life to uh you know whatever it is that you do all the great things they're wonderful things god blessings uh are on them but your calling is even greater than that the calling is as you catch the fish you are to follow jesus you're to follow jesus And that's where we end today. Where does Jesus, uh, where does he go?